You're listening to The Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema, bringing class to trash since All right, everybody, welcome to the Gentleman's Guide to Midnight Cinema. We are back, and here we go again. A couple more horror films for the next couple weeks for you guys. Uh, happy Halloween. Hope everybody's uh, enjoying the fall season. It's a wonderful time for movies, wonderful time for weather, wonderful time for beer, <laughs> wonderful yeah, time for holidays, wonderful time to be a kid and to be an adult. I actually find it very more, uh, much more interesting around Halloween time than uh, Christmas time in some ways. But that's Preacher. probably because, well, uh, that's probably because being an adult, you just end up broke. <laughs> you get, yeah, the bruise, yeah, you get bruised up real good <laughs> yeah. in another month or so as an adult. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you start saving money because you know you're going to run into some stuff. So anyway. Uh, Go ahead. Go ahead, Will. I was going to say it's the financial equivalent of being two-handed over the head by Bud Spencer over and over and over. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a good point. Yeah. yeah. Um, so we are back. We're going to talk some horror films this week. I chose um, a classic. Went way back in time to kind of go back and do one that um, I've kind of always wanted to talk about and we've never done on the show. And just to kind of – I would say, you know, watching – uh, for the for the record, for those who don't know, you know, we record uh, shows two weeks at a time. So, not to lift the veil too much, but it just works best for our schedule. It gives us an extra weekend uh, to sleep in and stuff, and and just do the things we like to do. Um, so, realizing this week that we really, in a kind of a weird way, chose back to back weeks of art house horror films. I don't know if we, I don't know if that we intended to do that, but we kind of did that. So. Yeah, it's it's funny. I was thinking about that too. How it worked out, where we kind of um, and I felt I was looking at sort of the ground we covered this month or are going to cover, and we, you know we've covered slasher, sort of demonic possession, mm-hmm. vampires, witches. Yeah, um, a little bit. Yeah, of sneak, kind of cover trash. Of, yeah, a little bit of sneak peek into the next week there with the witches. Yes. 
Oh yes, yes. Well, I mean, anybody that follows us on Facebook probably knows what we're what we're covering. But either way, yeah, we kind of we, we ran the gamut. The only thing we didn't do is, and I'll remember this. Of course, you know we can do horror films any time of the year. We don't necessarily do it. But last this year, I noticed we didn't do any. I mean, there wasn't really any monster flicks. Well, I guess this week is kind of a monster flick. Yeah, I guess it depends on how wide of a net you want to cast to define, you know, mm-hmm. vampires. Yeah. Um, I guess they're a monster, right? Yeah. So you vampires, can, witches. I get, you know, I guess they are technically. Yeah. I guess I was Demon. thinking more. Demon. Yeah, I guess I was thinking more along the terms. Feature, feature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, something like. Well, obviously, werewolves, you know, big, big, big yeah. deal to me. And uh, I didn't pick any werewolf films this year, but that's okay. You know what they say? In sports <laughs> parlance, it's always next year. Yeah. Or as in Mel Brooks parlance, werewolf, their wolf. <laughs> <laughs> that's right, man. One of the great lines in comedy history right there. Werewolf, their wolf. All right. Uh so we are doing 1932's Vampire or Vampire or however you want to say it. Vampire, Vampire. I think it's Vampire, man. I wasn't sure. I got to yeah. be honest with you. I wasn't sure and I didn't want to say it wrong the whole episode. So a Google search this week was, how do you pronounce this word? And it came back as Vampire. Okay. Whether that's a definitive statement or not, who knows? But I'm going to roll with Vampire uh, based on my Google search. Yeah. And this is directed by Carl Theodore Dreyer. We'll talk more about him and uh, film history and whatnot uh, when we get to the review proper. Uh, this one, uh, Criterion released it uh, some time ago. It's kind of been in their collection for a long time, very long time, and uh, still quite prevalent on the Criterion channel if you don't have the disc itself. Um, but yeah, we went way back in time. I mistakenly, mistakenly, well, that was hard to say for some reason, said last week that it's a silent film i had forgotten that it isn't a silent film it's actually an early sound film so yeah that's interesting as well and we'll kind of talk about that and how you can really kind of tell it's an early sound film is there's not very much dialogue <laughs> correct it, you still feel that transition yes sort of um like the cards like the title cards and everything yeah coming. yeah yeah, the stuff you got to read, right? You know, you see, you get that transition stuff. Yeah. Um, all right, so we'll talk about that in a little bit. Uh, in saying that, I think I have one piece of feedback here from our friend John H. Now, I don't want to say John's last name, but John, um, he has a YouTube channel, I'm pretty sure. Yes. This is the same John. Hang on, pulling up the email right now. Sorry, total buffoon. Trying to get it going here. You know uh, how we do. Yeah, they know how we do. Um, also, I got to ask you another question about another email when we get done. But he has a uh, and uh, a, what is the name of that? Because uh, he didn't put it in his subject here, I don't think. But I can't remember the name of his YouTube channel. I'm going to try to look it up while I read this, and then we can answer the questions. And I'm going to look it up while we're doing that. But uh, John writes in and says, "Hey guys, been meaning to write in for a while. Love what you're doing. It was great to hear you talk about the void." Excellent movie that I feel needs more attention. Just finished watching Girls Night Out, and it's totally worth watching just for that ending alone. <laughs> now for the important question. Who comes out in a cage match? Carrot Top or Polly Shore? <laughs> Joe. Wow. I know who my money's on. <laughs> well, yeah. yeah. He who lifts. <laughs> yeah, Carrot Top definitely lifts. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, he's... he's uh, I wouldn't say he's as natural as his moniker, but, um, 
Yeah, he's he clangs the iron, and I don't know. I think he's gonna do away with Polly. Uh, but he is the weasel, so he might have something up his. Yeah, his, he might have something up there. I, I I don't know. In a cage match, yeah, it looks like the clear winner is is uh, Carrot Top. Yeah, Carrot Top's gonna make him a uh, <laughs> yeah top bottom. But and, you know, in the reality of the um the horrific looks of the two carrot top also comes up on top because he frightens me yes sure is yeah he's he's aged as gracefully as i think he could <laughs> yeah paulie shores raised well as a matter of fact he's really pushing right now behind the scenes for anybody that doesn't know he's really pushing he really wants to make a richard simmons biopic wow and i never saw that until i did yeah, this is this is where none of us had in our bingo card for next year the Pauly Shore Oscar speech. Yes. And or the Pauly Shore Oscar buzz. Yeah, and look, I mean, I, I, I wish nothing but the best for anybody. Yep. Uh, there's some Pauly Shore movies that I guiltily enjoy. I think Jury Duty's pretty okay. I like Son-in-Law a little bit. I even That's like it. In the Army now a little bit. They're, they're, you yeah, know, yeah they're, not, they're not great films. Don't get me wrong. But no. You know, they're breezy, kind of goofy. And you can really, the, the problem with Polly Shore's type of comedy, and I know you're going to agree with this, it's it's either something you got to be in the mood for or it's something you can only do for a limited amount of time. Yeah, that that's a fair statement. That's a very fair statement. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carrot Top as well, though, for the record. Yep. Uh, you know, uh, there's been times when he's done stand up because he's a prop comedian, and uh, I think he's hilarious. And then there's yep. been times when he's done that, and I just want to choke myself to death. So, I agree. There is there have been times I've really liked his stuff. When I, you know, I haven't seen a ton of it lately, but I remember being younger and, and really thinking, uh, you know, he was he was good. Yeah, 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 he was. Um, so in saying all that, I never really gave an answer. I'm gonna go because it's a cage match and testosterone's involved. I'm gonna go with Carrot Top. <laughs> but uh, I think theatrically, we can all agree, Paulie Shore wins this match. <laughs> The follow-up, and we'll pose this to John, whose YouTube channel we should say is called And Now for Something a Little Different. Yes. Yeah, it's kind of a take on the Monty Python and now for something completely different, but this is a little different, yeah. That's right. So our our follow-up to him and for our listeners, if they want to chime in, you can feel free to answer this. Uh, Carrot Top, who's now holding the title in the the cage match, (laughs) uh, he's going to take on Danny Elfman. And if you've seen Danny Elfman shirtless. I have lately, yes. He's no pushover. So. He's not, not anymore. No, no. He's yeah. he's decided to to kind of do the uh, the yeah, lifting as well. Gains as well. Yeah, he's getting them gains, getting yeah. them gains. Uh, no doubt about it. Uh, that was kind of a shocking moment last year or a year or so oh, ago. Yeah. In performing shirtless, was it like a Coachella or something? Yeah, crazy? something like that. Coachella or Burning Man or some type. I don't know, some type of festival, and he threw his shirt off, and I mean, the internet went wild. He's yoked, man. Yeah. He's not a young man, for the no. record. No, he's not a young man I think, anymore. I think uh, he buys his supplements at the same place uh, Sly Stallone does, possibly. <laughs> but, hey, you still got to put the work in. Hey, yeah, Stallone may have, uh, he might be injecting him. He'd be he like, might. you no longer be an elf man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. <laughs> so thanks, John. We appreciate the feedback. As uh, usual, it leads to what we like to believe is comedy gold. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Whether or not it is, that is up to the listeners. Um, okay. Uh, 
let's get into what we've been watching a little bit. What have you been up to, man? I know you've been a little busy, but I know you've been squeezing in some uh, festive fare as well. Yeah, cramming and jamming for the season. Um, let's take a look back here. Yeah, that's the question. The the other problem, listeners, behind the scenes is because we record every two weeks, we have to remember where we left off <laughs> with that's what right. we've been covering. And I think I'm good. I think okay. I'm good. All right, let's hear it. Let's hear it. So I'm going to talk about like four or five now and then four or five next episode. Yeah, yeah. Uh, William was up, my son, not me. And he picked, uh, he wanted to rewatch Texas Chainsaw, the original. Oh, nice. Nice. So it had been a couple years since we'd seen it. Um, I, what can I say that I haven't said or that hasn't been written about it before? Uh, it just, it, it's, we're watching it and I had a conversation the next day with Braden and he goes, you know, dad, it's really good. But it's not as intense as I remembered it, mm. and um, which I thought was an interesting thing because of how much is off screen. Your mind kind of concocts this this horror, so I think it, you know, it, that was kind of playing with them. And I also said to him, "Hey, man, like the stuff you're seeing with these characters and the decisions they make, this isn't following the formula. This is." making the formula. This is 50 years ago, man. The film's like 50 years old almost. Mm, that's crazy. I know. Yeah, it's wild to me. And it's just, it's so stark and just feverish. Uh, yeah, I mean, what's crazy about it is, yeah, I mean, it is almost 50 because my whole life I've known about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Oh, man. And it, just, it holds up so well. It's just, it's so punchy. It's under 90 minutes and it just goes. And when that... That last sort of 25, 30 minutes kicks. It's just nuts, nuts, nuts. So, yeah, it's it's an all-timer. I think it's, it's for me, it's if I try to look at um, head, not heart, I think it's got to be one of the, you know, top five sort of purest horror films ever made. Like, I just think it's, uh, in addition to being a, an absolute favorite, you know, it's just gritty and sweaty and gross. and Well, it's it's all those things, but also it's just really... I, I think as I've gotten older, what I've really come to appreciate about that film, uh, the original Evil Dead, uh, the original Halloween, and a few other of the early horror films, Friday 13th even, which I think yeah. kind of gets poo-pooed on for its filmmaking, but I, actually I think it's quite well done. Agreed. I, I agree with you, and I think that I, I'm grateful that we're in an age now where uh, academics mm – -hmm. uh, as well as sort of serious labels like Criterion have um, critically reassessed the filmmaking around these films and given it the flowers that they deserve. Yeah. I mean, the, these, these films were made by kids with an urge for creativity, mm -hmm. obviously with an urge for success, too, and to be noticed. But that's the business. But the fact that they made these films with no money, hardly any money whatsoever – and you go back and look at those films, those ones I just mentioned, those four or whatever, three or four. It's it's unbelievable what they pulled off. It's yeah. unbelievable. It still it still blows my mind to this day when I think about it. What also blows my mind is that Jean Larroquette was paid with a single joint for the voiceover he does in the beginning of the film. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and you know, of course, he's had a great career, but he's forever always also known for that voiceover. I yeah. think he didn't. He didn't he do it again for the remake or something like that. I feel I like know. he came back and did it one more time. Nispel, Marcus Nispel, one or whatever. I think maybe. I think maybe he came back and did it again for one more time. He wasn't paid with a single joint this time, though. Yeah, 
Fool me once. Yeah, yeah, fool me once. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's going to want a bag this time. No, the, the – or a plant. The um, – you know that that reminds me that uh, you know everybody really disliked that. Oh, not not disliked it, but we kind of talked about that one from last year, right? Was it last year that Netflix one? I loved it. Yeah, the, that one was the, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is a weird one. I mean, it really has some ups and downs, and I've watched them all. And that one is is easily it's got to be top three or four. It's got to be up it's, there. It's so good. It's so nuts and just gross. It's really good. Mm-hmm. And I think I might have said it when I watched that one last year. And I don't know if I fully believe the statement I'm about to say, but <laughs> I feel like pound for pound, that series, top to bottom, might be more consistently good for my taste than uh, any of the other cornerstone friends, like the Fridays, the Halloweens, the Nightmare on Elm Streets. I will like, say, I, I, man, I don't know that how many I don't know how many films there are in the series now. When Todd and I were doing the show and you were out for a while, I went back and watched the ones in the 90s and the 2000s that I didn't see. Mm-hmm. Some of those were okay, and some of those were pretty bad. But when I think about Texas Chainsaw Massacre 1, 2, Leatherface Part 3, which some people don't like, but I enjoy, which recently, uh, that, that director just passed away recently, sadly. Um the Next Generation, the Kim Hinkle version. That's four films right there that are solid. The Marcus solid. Nisbell remake is really good, I think. And I, I think you dig that one. Yeah. yeah. And then you pile on the 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 Bulgarian or wherever it was shot uh, Netflix one. That's six. I think there's only maybe three or four more films in the series. So, I mean, six of the nine, uh, six of the ten or something. I mean, that's pretty good. That's a pretty good ratio. That's a damn good ratio. That's certainly better than Hellraiser's ratio. Oh man, don't even. <laughs> oh man, good Lord, man, that's better than Saw's ratio too. I got to say, although yeah. I'm hearing good yeah. things about the new Saw, man, I did that last year, and I thought I was going to do another series this year to play catch up mm-hmm. and try to go back and watch a series, but I, that Saw one may have done me in. I might not ever do that ever again. <laughs> yeah, I, I, when you were doing that, I was like, man, what's he doing here? He's going for another. He's doing Maul. I don't know what I was thinking. Soft his mind. <laughs> I just wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. I just wanted to see what everybody, quote unquote, saw. <laughs> yeah, that's no pun intended. Yeah. You yeah. turn your, your hat backwards mm. and you got to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, evidently the new one's pretty good. So now that means I'll probably have to watch another Saw movie. So damn it. Oh, they're pulling us back in. Yeah. Oh, well. It is what that's, it is. Yeah. Uh, next up was... Braden's pick and I think we all kind of knew what we were getting into with this one um when I say the title you'll know exactly what I mean and that's Spirit Halloween the movie oh boy yeah so yeah is- so I haven't seen this but uh I, I don't think that I need to you don't need to <laughs> you don't need to um this this is is pretty bad now I, I didn't mind it okay let me say this okay Going with the expectations yeah, yeah. I had all right for all intents and purposes, is like a 90-minute uh, Spirit Halloween ad. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They try to cater to, um, you know, kids, you know, sort of, I think, like the, the 10 to 14-year-old market. They keep it pretty tame, um, which I'm okay with. But I think we've seen films that were also kind of catering to that market like a monster squad or something. And it's unfair to probably measure this against that because this really, the intention was to just, you know, promote the store. But um, 
you know, it just, there's moments that feel very slapdash and, um, Christopher Lloyd's in it, which I didn't expect to see. That's kind of fun. He's the, the heavy in it. God bless him. Hmm. Um, a few weird casting choices. Like one of the kids who's cast, there's three boys that are supposed to be best friends. And they're at that age where one wants to stay with Halloween. He loves it. One thinks it's, you know, lame now cause he's in, into, you know, more social endeavors. Um, so there's that whole thing. One of the kids they cast, I mean, he looks like he's two or three years younger than the other two. It's just weird. But one thing I will say, I got to give flowers to one of the actresses, you know, the young actresses, Marissa Reyes, who played the older sister, Kate, in it. She kind of comes out unscathed through this. Oh. Um, the rest of the cast was pretty bad. She's really good to the point where Braden had said to me, hey, dad, he goes, no one's really great in this. But he goes, I think I think the sister's pretty good. I said, yeah, I thought the same thing. She's pretty good. So Marissa Reyes, you are the MVT of Spirit Halloween, the movie. Interesting. Um, yeah, so she was good. Um, next up, what do we got? Oh, this is one I really want to talk about. Actually, there's two I want to talk about quick, and then I'll jump off. So we uh, – and I haven't finished this one yet, but I don't want to forget to talk about it. So Friday the 13th. We wanted to watch a Friday the 13th film on Friday the 13th. Mm. It would almost be criminal this month to not do it. So right. we did. Uh, we decided we were going to watch the remake, 2009 or whatever it was. Oh, that's right. You had never seen this. This is the never. one that I had seen. It was in the early days of our podcast even. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So this is one I didn't get around to, and I distinctly remember some of our friends dug it. Yeah. Some hated it. Yeah, yeah. And there didn't seem to be a whole lot of lukewarm response. Like, not to say people thought it was the greatest film ever, but people admired that it was kind of doing its own thing. Well, I think it's, uh, uh, is it directed by Marcus Nispel? Is- it might be. It feels very Nispelian. Um, I think I had, I had really high hopes for it. So here's what I'll say about it, you know, and, and if I remember to come back to it and just kind of give my final thoughts, I will. But I did want to sort of touch on it briefly because I found a few things interesting about this film. Um, firstly, I love the, how how mean and brutal Jason is in it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Marcus spell too, by the way. It is. He runs. He's brutal. He's un- it, it had one of the most shocking kills I've seen in a horror movie. It's got it's got moments. Yes. There's a, there's a moment where this 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 young woman is in a sleeping bag. <laughs> yes. And he ties her up like she's like a cauldron and burns her to death in the sleeping bag. Yeah. It's terrible. It was like, yo, whoa, let, are we turning this off? Are we doing this? <laughs> yeah, I know. It was nuts. So I love that Jason's mean and fast. Um, big, too, because it's uh, Derek Mears, right? So he's like six foot eight, six foot nine, something like that. Which is great. Yeah, which is great. He cuts a nice uh, shape. But um, the other thing that I found kind of weird was a lot of the characters aren't very likable. Yes. Which is, you know, you, you get some, you don't. I mean, that's a slasher for you. But. I can't put my finger on it, but it didn't feel at times like a Friday the 13th film. Like it felt like I could have been watching any slasher. Now, I don't know how much that has to do with it sort of being baked into how I view either through nostalgic or critical eyes, the Friday series, you know, that whole, you know, late seventies up to sort of late eighties, uh, aesthetic that we get with the ones that are most celebrated and most watched in the series. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I don't know if that's it, but it just it didn't really necessarily feel like a, a Friday film. But I, I liked what I saw. I mean, I liked it more than I think some people did. I was willing to kind of judge it on its own terms. And yeah, you know. I liked it. I can still remember what I didn't like about it, and it was that I can remember 
and maybe I'd feel different about it now, but at the time, I remember that Jason had a lair. He does, yeah, yeah. And that's a. I thought that was a weird touch. Now, I'm not saying that that's not possible. He does have to have a home base, I would think. Yes. But I think it just threw me for a loop. I was just not ready for the intricacies of Jason's lair. <laughs> so I will go on the record as saying I am Team Jason Batcave. Because I think if we separate ourselves from the lore of the franchise, yeah. it makes total practical sense. Yeah, I guess it does. That he would have one. Yeah. If he's gonna do what he does, he's gonna make a career of this. <laughs> you gotta have a bat cave. Yeah, well, yeah, he's gotta have a home base. You gotta, man. It's a good point. It's a valid point. Yeah, which we just kinda go, Oh, why does he have that? Yeah, but he'd need one, man. <laughs> if he's gonna make this his life work. <laughs> He's got to have a layer, man, to, to trap raccoons and <laughs> that's funny. You know, start on his machetes and <laughs> I don't know why that's funny to me now, but it is. Yeah, I think at the time though, I was just like, no, for sure, it threw a lot of people off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it took away from him being a hulking menace and also like a almost like a but a thinking man. Yeah, he becomes yeah. more. Yeah, it it. it demystifies yeah. him a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It takes him away from being the prototypical slasher character to a, which they tried to make him, and you know, like part two, he is a slasher character with, I think he lives in a shack, you know, he's got the potato sack, all that stuff. Part three is when he becomes um, kind of metaphysical, supernatural Jason, in so many ways, and he kind of becomes this this force of nature, and from that point on, and it just gets more and more ludicrous. And I guess I'd I'd adapted so much to that idea of supernatural Jason that I had forgotten that at one point, even in the original two, well, the original, the second part two, my favorite of the series, um, that he was actually a real person or thing at some point. That's right. Yeah. Pretty cool. All right, is that, is that all you got? Yeah, that's it. You gonna stop there? Oh, right. wait, uh, one more. Sorry, one okay, more. go ahead. Final one. Uh, caught up with Totally Killer. A lot of our friends have been watching this one. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and I don't want to. We've been going long already, but I got to say, everyone, check this one out. We had a lot of fun with it. It's it's you know the elevator pitches, Back to the Future meets um, Scream. Mm-hmm. I think that sells it pretty well. You know, it, it it's you know, going to be one of the highlights of my month from a viewing perspective. Super fun. Um, really, really dug it. High, high recommend. Nice. Nice. Good stuff. All right. Um, let's see. What did I watch? Um, I did a rewatch of May, which if you want to hear my thoughts on that, that was the second time I'd seen it. I, I did a not a bomb episode, so you can go over there and listen to that. If you want to hear my deep thoughts on it, but it was an interesting rewatch. I'll say that. Um, I just got a couple more. I don't want to go over too much of my stuff here. Uh, rewatch Jim Jarmusch's The Dead Don't Die, which oh, is in this yet? Yeah, yeah. So this is his zombie movie, and you're either in for this or you're not. That's the way I would say. And you know, in in fairness, that's pretty much all Jim Jarmusch films. Yeah. I mean, really, when you think about it, I mean, even his some of his perfect films, in my opinion, are close to perfect films like Ghost Dog and. And things like that. I mean, you're either in to Jarmusch or you're not. I, re- I really don't think there's any in between. You know, I really liked his vampire film, Only Lovers Left Alive. Love that, yeah. Yeah, and this was his zombie film. 
And I liked what he did here too. And I won't talk about it too much because it'll give it away what kind of took place in it and stuff. Um, the only other thing I'll talk about this week, I checked out last night, actually. I checked out uh, Killers of the Flower Moon, the uh, latest from Martin Scorsese. Have you ever heard of this guy? Sounds familiar, but can't place it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He uh, he's got another film out there. Uh, again, we we live in this era where eighty something year old filmmakers are still making, in my opinion, relevant films, and that's just crazy. Um, it kind of goes against uh, what uh, uh, Tarantino's kind of said that you know you only have ten great films in you. I don't know if that's true. I don't know if no. that's true anymore. I mean, maybe some filmmakers only have 10 great films in them. Maybe some filmmakers only have one great film in them. Let's be honest. Yeah. Um, but Martin Scorsese seems to, uh, he seems to exist in this vacuum where he can kind of do what he wants. And rightfully so. He's, you know, one of America's gifts to cinema. He's probably the biggest champion of cinema in America, maybe worldwide, to be honest with you. Oh, big uh, time. And, you know, even he knows things change. And I know he's taken some crap lately for his thoughts on the commercialism of movies and things like that. And then turn around saying Christopher Nolan's going to be, you know, films are going to be remembered and everything else. And then people are saying, well, by the way, Marty, he did a he did some comic book films. But Christopher Nolan also did some very different comic book films, really, when you think about it. Um, they're not exactly the same. I think if you do Batman films, you can kind of... It seems like you can kind of exist in your own kind of stratosphere. And you don't really have to worry about that uh, that slave of the, the connected universe and everything else, which is kind of nice. So you can kind of be a filmmaker in the Batman universe, which is kind of interesting. Yeah, exactly. Probably when you think about it, yeah. And I think that's why that character and certain other characters might be able to live forever because, you know, you can always have somebody come along and say, this year, Quentin Tarantino's Batman, you know, and it'll be like, whoa, this is Quentin Tarantino's version of Batman or Robert Rodriguez's version or, um, I don't know, uh, Ari Aster's version of Batman. That'd be interesting. Um, yeah. So, you know, anyway, this film, three hours, 20 something minutes, three hours, 25 minutes, I think. Gigantic release, $200 million movie. And let me just tell you, this is one of the biggest art house movies I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Wow. I am I'm amazed he got this made. Um this is totally a movie for grown-ups and adults and deals with themes such as greed, power, um and adult problems. And it's really both beautiful and heartbreaking and infinitely interesting. Um it's him also kind of tackling the subject of you know uh, for lack of a better term, you know, white elitism, but more so, I think the lure of money and how dangerous that is. You know, Wolf of Wall Street, he played with that a little bit, but he kind of played with it comedically uh, yes. a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of fun while at the same time he's kind of hitting you with those themes. This one, he's really just hitting you with this is how bad this can be. Everybody's really good in this movie. I mean, there is not a bad performance in this film. Uh, maybe there, at one point there's a scene where uh, Lily Gladstone, the lead actress, she's talking to a preacher on a, a pew, a, a priest, 
and he's pretty bad. I don't know what, what kind of line readings he's given, but I, I don't even know who that actor is. But everybody else in this film is very good uh, to, to great. I mean, I expect this thing will get multiple Oscar nominations. Um, it's that kind of movie. It's heavy. It's uh, deep. It's thematic. It's beautiful. The soundtrack is amazing. It looks amazing. Shot by Rodrigo Prieto. Oh, great DOP. Yeah. It, it, and like Scorsese always does, he's able to kind of redefine himself while still always having a little Scorsese in there. And uh, he's done that over and over in his career. And it's amazing to me that he can still pull it off. And I just got to say, it's one of the best films I've seen this year. There's no doubt about that. I'm still struggling with some of it in some ways. And some of the ideas he kind of throws out there and some of the ways he jumps around. But all in all, this is this is just a big, beautiful movie. And, you know, I'm really, this year has been a really good year for grown uh, adult um, drama and filmmaking. That's not to say you can't have supernatural elements or superheroes or anything like that. You can still have those things. But tackling it for more than just a 13 to 21-year-old audience is is interesting to me. And I don't think there's no material in here that would be bad for children at all. Matter of fact, it's other than the fact the violence is pretty heavy, it's actually a very tame movie in a lot of ways. But the themes are darker than the violence we typically see in a PG-13 film, right? Mm-hmm. So it's 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 definitely a conversation piece. It's a beautiful film. I can't I can't recommend it enough. I suspect I don't know that anybody will get an Oscar out of this, but I wouldn't be surprised. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if Scorsese didn't walk away with a best director Oscar here, or this couldn't walk. This might walk. This feels like a best picture. Walking out of it, I thought that really feels like the kind of movie that the Academy awards that trophy to. I can't, right. I, mean, I haven't seen obviously, you know, some of the other buzzworthy films yet. I've heard a lot of good things about American fiction, some other films. Um, but I haven't seen any of those films yet. Right. Wait, as, as you guys have known, have been a fan of this podcast for a long time. A lot of those films, the, the regular Joes don't really get to see until the end of December, the beginning of January. So I don't know, but this one is, very well done, and I am just amazed that he can keep doing it, and that he's just he's dialing it back. He's going to take a break, and he's going to dive right back in. Him and Leo got another thing; they got another thing they're getting ready to do together. And, yeah, that's right. And Leonardo DiCaprio, I am I am thankful for actors like this. I mean, he he definitely takes it seriously. He is not attractive in this film in any way, shape, or form. This is maybe his ugliest performance. And bravo to him for stepping back and realizing that, you know, he could be making, let's be honest, he could be making $20, $25 million salary films easily. But I am so impressed that he continues to take this very seriously and that he's roped himself off with one of the great American directors, one of the great directors, let's be honest, and taking his career where he has. Because it makes everything he does, it makes it all have weight. And uh, I'm it's impressive. De Niro is great in this. Get a little bit of a southern accent, De Niro, here. But he also has those moments, like he did in The Irishman, where De Niro does not have to say a word, and you know exactly what is going on in his head. Yep. 
And there's a couple moments in this that will send chills down your spine when you see, you know, somebody will say something and he just gives a look and you're like, that, that is something that not every actor has. <laughs> and it's pretty amazing. Also, I got to say De Niro's earlobes, they are growing like crazy. He has got, he's, he's starting to get them grandpa ears. You know what I'm talking about? <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course. <laughs> Those lobes are starting to drop. I heard Brandon Fraser's pretty good in the film too. Frazier's good. There's there's some other people in the film. I don't want to give it away. There's actually some cameos in here that you're going to... I mean, you could probably go to IMDb and see it all, right? But it's kind of like Oppenheimer. I, I, I haven't looked at the cast because people have told me some of the fun of Oppenheimer is just seeing people pop up. Yeah, I'll, I'll do the same with this yeah. one. I'm not, uh, yeah, the, you'll, you'll see some musicians pop up in here, some that are completely unrecognizable. Uh, the ending of this film might trouble some people, I think. It's a... It's critically or or just emotionally or I think well a little bit of both I think audience wise it might turn some people off but um, it's an interesting ending yeah I mean <laughs> I don't know who else could end a two hundred million dollar maybe I don't know how much money this movie actually cost I heard it was two hundred million dollars plus it's an interesting way to end a big movie and it's interesting that they they keep giving him the money to make these big movies. But, you know, he's going to the streamers to help, too. You know, Apple helped co-produce this with Paramount. And, of course, he did The Irishman, which Netflix financed. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where the money is. And they're letting him make these movies. And thank God they are. Thank God we're getting, you know, because, you know, he said himself, he doesn't know how many more he's got left. And uh, he he hopes to, you know, pass the baton off and people keep carrying on. But he's also said thing, nice things about Ridley Scott, who, you know, he has a huge movie coming out this year, Napoleon. Oh, yeah. And these guys, you know, like I said, they're in their 80s. And, you know, I, I'm used to 80-year-olds being like, let's take it easy, you know? Big time. But I think we spoke about this a while ago where you were at a point in society where, you know, if you take care of yourself um, from, a you know, a dietary, like nutritional and exercise and everything, um, you can live longer and live a good quality of life longer. Mm -hmm. And I think you know, we talk about that with sports and, and athletes' longevity, but you're seeing it, as we'd said prior, with with artists, with filmmakers. Yeah. And Marty Smart, like you said, I think he's he's um, there's a great piece where he talked about having a sort of, sort of a, a tragic sense of urgency about wanting to get as many films out as he could. Yeah, he can, as he knows he's getting older, um, but also just that it's a win-win because a lot of these streaming services may have the money, but they don't have necessarily the prestige. So by bringing him on board, they get the prestige, he gets the money. And then in the end, both win because you get a buzzy film come award season. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty interesting. Um, I, I think, you know, this is where the streamers and the power of the streamers, Amazon and these big companies, this is where it can be beneficial to American culture. I don't know that they should be turning around and making every $200 million movie. But I am glad when they're giving it to, you know, the Martin Scorsese's, the Ridley Scott's, because I think Napoleon is partly financed by Apple as well. Wouldn't surprise me. So, I mean, you got these companies that are just kind of, you know, helping get these films out there. And, you know, again, mileage may vary on who you think a master filmmaker is, but the truth of the matter is these guys, Verhoeven, Scott, uh, De Palma's in his 80s now, I think. Although he hasn't really done anything of any significance in some time. Uh, Scorsese. There's another one I'm missing. I'm blanking on that we've talked about, but I'm just blanking on it right now. But these guys, you know, still generating these films. 
uh, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing to me. And, you know, not blinking either. Not not saying, you know, they are telling the stories they want to tell and they're not afraid. And, you know, Scorsese stays very Scorsese here. He's not, he doesn't turn away from violence. He doesn't turn away from uh, the ugliness of humanity and sometimes the beautiful part of humanity. So, and that's what this film is. This film is about the beauty, but it's also about the, the ugly. And uh, it's a very human story in that way. And I can't, I can't recommend it enough. It's, it's a great film. It's a great film. Uh, I wouldn't drink too much before you go in. It's a long movie. And unfortunately, they don't put intermissions in films. At one point, the, I had to actually get up and uh, you know, use the restroom. And I thought to myself, wouldn't it be great if they brought the intermission back? <laughs> oh, for real? Yeah. So I had to rush real quick and uh, go use the restroom real fast and come back. I don't think I missed much. But everybody's good in the film, man. Yeah, I think you'll like it. And you'll think to yourself the same thing I thought. How does, you know, I mean, obviously it's because of Scorsese and the star power and everything else. That's the only reason why something like this gets made. But yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's pretty amazing. It was. I'm excited. Definitely check that out. And all of our listeners, I'm sure some of them did. uh, Definitely check it out. Well, I just want to say, you know, uh, you know, what's not running out of time. Well, I would say Johnny Toe, but he is running out of time <laughs> He's in a film sense, hopefully not in a life sense. Yeah, in film sense, he is. Matter of fact, he ran out of time twice, didn't he? That's right, he did. <laughs> <laughs> but for us, yeah, we never run out because it's time for this or that. There we go. Music even kicked in before I could even get the words this or that out that time. That's, um, you know. What are you, you going to do? I mean, I, you know, I, it's not a perfect system at this point. It's kind of the fun of the whole thing, right? So, you know, we're not we're not professional radio people. We're two guys in rooms <laughs> with husky voices. Yeah. All right. Let's see. Do you have any this or that's? I'm sure you have some. I may have a couple. Ooh, do you want to go first? Uh, yeah, I'll go first. Um, vampire death weapon i'm gonna say which do you prefer wooden steak or holy cross what do i prefer cinematically yes oh the steak man well i mean no i mean i mean i mean realistically i mean when you're out there vampire hunting which i know you do in your spare time what do you i mean what do you use (laughs) I, i gotta go with the steak i gotta go with the steak I think this, the cross doesn't have the oomph. It feels like a layup or a finger roll. The steak's like the slam dunk, man. So, so here's that. This is where I agree with you. The thing about the steak is the steak is personal. Very much. The steak is it's penetration. Not to get too far down the uh, <laughs> the proverbial wormhole here, but it is penetration. It's it's visceral. It's impact. It's you know essentially, for lack of a better term. You're fucking the vampire. You're ending their life. Instead of them penetrating you with your fang, their fangs, <laughs> yes, penetrating them with that state. You're flipping the script, so to flipping speak. Script on those Romanians. The problem with the Christ imagery is, I, I, look, I appreciate it, but it just looks so stupid when somebody reacts to a cross. When they put the the cross on the forehead, and they hear the sizzle, the bacon sizzle. <laughs> yeah, the cat hiss, the hands yeah, go up. Yeah, come on, man. look, it, it's 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 fine. It works cinematically sometimes. Really, I don't think it works 
past like Dracula, the original, or past like maybe some of the Hammer Dracula films, it really doesn't work at all for me. No. But I see why it exists. It, it you know, people can identify obviously with faith and whatnot. But the the wooden stake is still the best. I mean, it just it it just it's the best vampire death method. It it works the best, and I still think it it's uh, I think it's held up. Although I don't think they've ever really explained why a wooden stake does it. Is that is that Christ like because of the cross, or is that maybe? Yeah, there's some ropey science there, but you know, another thing I'm thinking about with that is you also get that from a cinematic perspective that tension of they're tiptoeing down, they're asleep, are they going to wake up? Yeah, yeah. Stake them in time. So whereas the cross, they just kind of slowly put it towards the front. Although I, I like when some films demystify the cross and the absurdity of it, like um, like Fright Night or other ones, right? I'm okay with them kind of not wanting to be around crosses, but the cross as a weapon just doesn't, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, to kind of go back to another thing that I really like, one of the, my favorite things about the vampire mythos is the inviting them into your house thing. I like that. I do like yeah, that. Yeah, it's such a simple thing, but the audience knows you can't do that. Like, oh, yes. come on in. It's like, boom, you've made a mistake. Boom. Oh, you, you've, not, you've done it. <laughs> yeah, you've screwed up. You've yeah. done it. You've, you've put too much ketchup on the fries. That's right. Done. You drowned them. There's no going back. No going back. Now you're now you're not having fries. You're having ketchup. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, oh, that thought, I thought that was kind of an interesting one because I wondered where you stood on it because some people love that religious imagery stuff though. So they do. Mm-hmm. They do, and that's cool. But it is. Yeah. For us, yeah, it's not how we roll. All right, what you got? Um, Creep Show Two or Tales from the Dark Side. Ah. <sighs> Man, that that's tougher than you think. I need to rewatch Tales from the Dark Side. I really do. I haven't, man. I haven't seen that in a long time. Have you Same. watched that recently? When's the last time you saw that? Gosh, I've almost pulled the trigger on a rewatch a few times. Um, There's something in Dark Side that I've yeah. seen Creepshow two more recently. Mm. Without further knowledge of knowing. I'm going to take a guess and say that I like Tales from the Dark Side of the movie more than I like Creepshow 2. There's really only one sequence in Creepshow 2 I really like. The blob? Yeah, that raft thing, right? Raft. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's really the only thing I really like. I can't think yeah. of anything else in Creepshow 2 that even... Can you think of anything else in Creepshow 2 that even has any impact? Mm, not I really. Not legit. I guess in know. saying that, I can't think of anything from Tales from the Dark Side, but in fairness... Yeah, there's this the gargoyle sequence with Radon Chong. There's oh, the yeah, yeah, yeah. Buster Poindexter cat hitman one. Oh, I like that one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah I'm going to go Tales from the Dark Side. Yeah, yeah, See, yeah. So you remember that more. So that tells me everything. That tells me I'm probably right. Yeah. I feel like um, we'd watch Creepshow 2, and it's a little, a little more vulgar, kind of just uglier than I remember it being. But um, yeah. I, I also will go Tales. That, okay. that that gargoyle sequence really stuck with me. It's got uh, what's his name, Ajax there, James Remar. Hmm. Uh, that's just it was a very tragic, horrific ending to that one. Now I don't know how the effects will hold up, but I, it, it stuck with me all these years. So I got to go with that one. Okay, I like it. I like it. I am going to go with two of the lesser John Carpenter films, and I want to see which one you like more. John Carpenter's The Ward or John Carpenter's Memoirs of an Invisible Man? Unfortunately, there's a default answer here. <laughs> I've never seen memoirs. And I've oh, always meant- there we go. 
I've always meant to, man. I was just saying that a couple weeks ago. I've never seen that, and I've never seen Carpenter's Elvis. Which, uh, one of those is way better than the other. I'll let you guess which one. <laughs> I, I bet the uh, the Russell Jam. So yeah, uh, I'll say this. I was actually talking about the Ward. <clears throat> so we were talking about. I was talking about late cycle Carpenter, mm-hmm. and I was saying, and I've said it on this show. Uh, I've seen Ghost of Mars. Yeah, in the time we've done the show, mm-hmm. I like it. Yeah, it's I've a- I've come. I hated it the first time I saw it. I've come to like it quite a bit. Yeah, it's got a fun cast. It feels like a Carpenter jam. I think even Cundy still shot it, which gives yeah. it that. It, that it definitely feels like a Carpenter film. It, look, it's it's a stupid movie, mm-hmm. but it's a good stupid movie. Yeah, that's the best way to put it. Yeah, but, I, but you reviewed the Ward for our show. Uh, on a on a TIFF report. Yep. And I remember the one thing I remember from that review was you keep talking about Westerns, John. Why don't you make a Western? I know. <laughs> I know, man. And he still has not made a Western. I just wish he would. I wish he would before he signs off because he's getting up there, too. Yeah, he is. Uh, I wish he would just buckle down, put some people on horseback and just tell a Western story. Just give me a gunslinger story. Just give me a couple guys hunting for gold. Yeah. John Carpenter style. I, I want to see that. Let's do it. Right. Yeah. Let's do it. You know, it's, so, uh, so you're the ward on this one, right? I got to go ward by default. Maybe not even by default. Just where it's at. I, I didn't mind the ward. It felt anonymous, but yeah, it was okay. I, I watched the ward, of course, I guess a year after you saw it at the festival. And I got to say, I actually thought about rewatching it not too long ago. I kind of like, I kind of like the ward. Weirdly, it's not really my kind of thing, but there's some Carpenter-esque elements in there that, I mean, it's a way lesser, but it's still not his, in my opinion, still his worst film. I know a lot of folks have come back out and said Memoirs is a good film and everything else. I still don't think Memoirs of Invisible Man is a good movie. I just do not. It's just, it's a miss for everybody involved, except maybe Sam Neill. But oh, Sam Neill's in it. I didn't really. I, I always think of, of course, old Chevy. But Chevy, Daryl Hannah, and Sam Neill, I believe. Wow. Shot by Dean Cundey, I'm pretty sure, and it looks good. Looks like a John Carpenter movie. I I don't think John Carpenter has a very good sense of humor. Sorry, John, if you're listening. I just don't think he knows humor. You know what I mean? So no, I don't know. And Chevy Chase is hit or miss with his humor, right? So so yeah, that's what I'm gonna go with. That's all I got for this or that. I know you got probably one more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, hmm. He's, well, he's thinking. He's thinking, folks. Which one? Which one? He's debating. Uh, why don't we go? It's, it's become a contest now. No, I was going to ask. I want to go. I want to save a heavy hitter for next week. What, uh, hold on one sec. No, no problem. No problem. Filling time here. It's not an issue. You get to hear me sing. Maybe I do some throat singing. Something. <laughs> That's embarrassing. Uh, let's see. With that? No problem. Uh, go ahead. I'm going to go with two filmmakers here. Um, All right. These are two up-and-coming filmmakers who've sort of established their brand. Curious where you sit on this. I don't think you, I don't know if you've seen one of their films, but let's see. Uh, Julie DeCourneau or Brandon Cronenberg? Ooh, have I seen any Julia DeCourneau? 
if you have not, I'll, I'll do a different one. Uh, what are we talking when we're talking De Corneau? It's not ringing any bells, but that doesn't mean I haven't seen something. Uh, she did Raw. Oh, yeah. Okay, so I know who she is now. Titan? Uh, yeah, you know what? I haven't seen any of her films yet, right? I haven't because I have not seen Titan yet, oh, and I've been man. meaning to. Yeah, Raw, Raw didn't appeal to me because it involves, you know, the, the one thing that still bothers me in cinema, which is, you know, cannibalism. And I just, I won't watch that until I absolutely have to. But I need yeah. to see Titan, though. I definitely need to see it's, that. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, I definitely need to see that one. It's a very, it's a very, um, it's it's a it's a really uncomfortable watch, mm-hmm. and I think she's a really really talented filmmaker. She's like Bria or Brie. I always you know I don't know which one. Bria. She's she's like that very. Um, she's not going to pull any punches. She's going to make the film that she wants, and uh, it's it's very unrelenting. And I think she's got a, a really interesting voice, and I think she's one of the the shining lights in film uh, at this point. I really like her work. She's a must see filmmaker for me. Nice, nice. Yeah, so I, I, yeah. I mean, I obviously I can't uh, speak to her work. I will. I, I mean, but obviously I, I'm a big fan of Brendan Cronenberg. Huge fan. Cronenberg's good, but I think uh, old Julia's got him yeah. for my money. I'll but they're both. Good. We can have both, and luckily we do have both. So I'll give you. I'll give you a different one then. This is one I know you can speak on. Uh-huh. Like Conan, I want to hear you speak on this. <laughs> <laughs> Susie Kendall or Barbara Boucher? Susie Kendall or Barbara Boucher? We've talked about this before in a way because, uh, you know, Boucher's always kind of gotten, uh, no pun intended, the shaft for some of her performances and stuff. And and we've come to quite like her as time has gone on doing the Jollies and the Italian film she's been in. Uh, especially, she's the one in Cry of a Prostitute, right? So, oh, yeah. And that uh, that one really kind of changed my opinion of her because the the insanity of that movie. Um. I like Susie. I think Susie Kendall. No, I'm gonna go Barbara Boucher. I had to think about it for a minute. I used to think Susie Kendall was prettier, but I think I've turned around and become Boucher. I've, I've become a Boucher guy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, I, I think I always, for the longest time, I kind of took her for granted. So, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I love, I love Boucher. Let me let the dog out. She wanted in. Now she wants out. Okay. Um. Maybe she wants out. She wants out until I open the door. <laughs> and then she, <laughs> she wants, wants to stay. Back. Yeah, then so, she wants back in. That's right. This is a tough one. I think both are they're loved in our circles. But I think, can you believe Susie Kendall was married to Dudley Moore? <laughs> <laughs> Wild. Yeah. I, well, I mean, from what I remember of Dudley, he was a bit of a ladies' man. He was. Yeah, the women, the women loved him. And uh, from yeah, what I understand, he loved, he loved them. <laughs> Ladies love cool Dudley, man. Yeah, yeah, he he had quite the, uh, yeah, he's had quite the track record, from what I've yeah. read. Yeah. Um. Gosh, this is tough. You know, I love, I love. Mm. I feel I like I feel one. like Boucher was married to somebody at some point. Maybe not though. Let me check quickly while I'm deliberating. I just, I gotta just make a decision here, man. You gotta make a decision. Uh, I'm gonna man. They both got really good filmographies. I, I'm gonna go with Boucher as well. I, I love Boucher. I always have. Like you, I think we had a chance to kind of um, reassess her critically, and I think she gives more than just good face in her films. 
Yes. Um, I think Kendall might be might be a touch better as a leading woman, but I think Boucher is a little bit underappreciated. And uh, fun fact, she was born Barbel Gucciarola <laughs> in Liberec, Czechoslovakia. Nice. Barbel Gucciarola. Czechoslovakian. There you go. She was in uh, another fun fact. Uh, she was in, you know, a lot of people don't know this, but she's briefly, if you look, she's in Gangs of New York. Wow, and fun fact, Susie Kendall played a guest screamer in Barbarian Sound Studio. <laughs> there we go. So <laughs> we're finding out all kinds of stuff we probably didn't know. Yeah, two 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 Jalo Queens for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Two of the uh the preeminent, I would say, Gialli Queens. And uh I think if um I, I could if she was uh uh Boucher was married to Luigi Borgesi. Borgesi? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So there you go. Um, He was an actor. You guys may know some of his stuff. Uh, Toreg, the Desert Warrior. God. (laughs) And Street People. Uh, Some of the films he produced. I think he was in them too. I I can't remember if he was in them or not. Maybe he's just a producer. Yeah, he's just a producer. No, he acted in some stuff. I'm trying to see, but nothing. No, nothing that we would have covered, probably. No, I was looking. Yeah, I remember that, you know, I mean, I I remember reading about him, but looks like he's just mostly a uh, producer. Street people. How come we haven't ever done street people? How about Spaghetti at Midnight, man? That's quite the poster. That is. The street people. Roger Moore, Stacey Keach. Wow. Stacey Keach and Roger Moore in an Italian film. Oh, I've seen that. I've seen that. Weird. That was an early uh, CG pickup for me. Nice. Yeah, I've seen that, man. Nice. Yeah, Spaghetti at Midnight. That's 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 pretty awesome. Also, for the record, Spaghetti at Midnight sounds like a good idea. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> It'll pack on some pounds. Hey, it's a Sergio Marto- Mar- Mar- Martino film. That's amazing, yeah. Uh, well, we might have to look into that. Yeah, no doubt, man. <laughs> I'm sure it's one of his Italian comedies. Which we will, well, it's got Ugo Bologna in it. There you go. Mighty Bologna. <laughs> the mighty Ugo Bologna. <laughs> in some circuits, I'm known as Uno Bologna, if you know what I mean. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, that's this or that this week. We are going to take a short break. We're going to come back and discuss uh, 1932's Vampire. We'll be back right after this. been a big fan of that song. I don't know why I've never played it on the show, actually, so... 
Well, I just played it again. How about that? So there you there. go, man. <laughs> Total klutzy behavior for me. There we go. Hitting buttons. <laughs> How embarrassing. All right. Let's see if I can fix that in editing. If not, you're welcome, everybody. Uh, 1932's Vampire, directed by one Carl Theodore Dreyer. A drifter obsessed with the supernatural stumbles upon an inn where a severely ill adolescent girl is slowly becoming a vampire. Uh, this stars a lot of people you've probably never heard of. Uh, Julian West is Alan Gray, the lead. It's got kind of a haunting look. Um, got Marie Schutz, Schutz in here as uh, the Lord of the Manor. We got Rena Mandel, Sibel, 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 Schmitz. I mean, just a bunch of people you, we probably don't know enough about. But let's talk about Carl Theodore Dreyer for a second. So he's one of the early kind of vanguard filmmakers in the world, really. Um, I think from, uh, I, I don't know where he's from exactly. Yeah. I know. Go, go ahead. He's from Denmark. Denmark. So he's a great Dane. He's a great Dane. Not a Denmarkian, as some folks have said, including me probably on the show before. Um, but his mom, uh, was a, well, she was a Swedish and his dad was Danish. So that makes him, uh, that makes him uh, quite a tasty pastry, if it sounds like to me. He is, he is a Nord, <laughs> yeah. through and through. Through and through. And again, one of the early kind of uh, experimental filmmakers, and Will has talked on this show about his love of uh, The Passion of Joan and Arc, which is oh, man. arguably one of the... Uh, it's one of the, I would argue, one of the great films of all time, probably. I would also argue that yeah. I absolutely think that if I was going to make a list of the 10 greatest films of all time, it would, it would at the very least be in strong consideration, if not make the list, which is a silent film. If I recall correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, this one, like I said, I, I mistakenly called it that now, now dryer didn't work that much. He, he loved cinema and he loved messing with it. And he's, he was a bit of a tinkerer. Um, he would see things and be like, I can do that. And that's exactly what happened here. He had seen some German expressionistic stuff. And he basically told somebody, one of his uh, compatriots, one of his associates, that, oh, I can do that. And that's why he decided to make Vampire. And uh, really, it was a chance for him, too, to mess around with the camera. So one of the great things about the early filmmakers, like him and Fritz Lang and and uh, D.W. Griffith and those guys. But Murnau. really, yeah, Murnau, mostly the European guys, though, is they really... Um, wanted to mess with the form very early. Americans were very reticent, it seemed, at first to mess with the form. We were very much a point-and-click kind of uh, filmmaking, uh, kind of subordinate, if, if that makes sense, right? I mean, if you think about early American films, a lot of them are shot wide, master shot, the occasional close-up, but uh, usually on built sets and usually in the square box formats, which is what this is shot in. The difference between Fritz Lang, Murnau, Dreyer, and these guys is they were taking these large, cumbersome cameras and finding ways to move them. And that, of course, influenced a whole other generation of filmmakers. And Americans kind of adapted that and everything. And, and you know, Sergi Eisenstein, too. We didn't talk about him, but, you know, he's another oh, one. Um, yeah, with editing and moving the camera. And we've talked about this before with Lang and M about how a camera moves. So... I kind of wanted to talk about this one because this is early special effects, early camera work, 
and just a very early film, but very influential. You can completely tell it's 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 a very influential film. Um, I know you had never seen it, so I'm kind of curious what your thoughts are. I, I can already tell you I know it's not as good as Passion of Joan of Arc. Even I agree with that. But I'm curious what you think of Vampire from 1932. Yeah, well, you know, you covered a lot of ground there. Um, I, I agree with everything you said. Being someone who admittedly got into a lot of the the vegetables and fiber of the film world, you know, a lot of the early stuff like this, and those shouldn't be dirty words, but we've often talked about having those comfort foods, you know, the, you know, the Enzo Castellari films are the, you yeah. know, the, the hamburgers and the, you know, all the stuff that we, we get into is sort of comfort food and junk food. Yeah. The spaghetti at midnight, right? <laughs> spaghetti at midnight. Absolutely. <laughs> so sometimes, you know, we are more reluctant to give the time to films from filmmakers like Dreyer. Uh, I'm always grateful when I do. And just to echo something you'd said, one of the things I'm always really taken aback by and, and really in awe of is how often a lot of these uh, European filmmakers of the time had such a strong mastery and were so far ahead of their American counterparts yeah. in terms of their, their technique, their film language, their ability to construct and deconstruct uh, technique, film language, um, all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. So to me, it, it's just very interesting that, that sort of Germany and Russia, uh, by and large, just really – you know, ahead of the, the curve on that front. Uh, and of course, Dreyer being a Dane, he's sort of in that, you know, that realm as well. So, um, yeah, had never seen this was a bit of a list, not a bit of, it was a list of shamer because I felt like, uh, being someone who loves film, um, and loves horror film, this is a very important early horror film. Um, and, this is, I think we had said this, Criterion put this out, it is on their channel, so you can watch it, so you can stream it if you don't have a physical copy, of course. I don't know if this is, but it, I feel like it might be. This is, is this the oldest film we've ever covered on the show? In terms of um, when it came out versus when it's being reviewed? Because this is essentially, this is 91 years. That, that's a good question, yeah. Um, I don't know, M is one of the older ones we've done as well. And I can't remember when it yeah, that came out in 31, but of course the show was younger too back then. So I don't know. This might be the longest stretch. Yeah. I mean, if you wanted to play that kind of math. Yeah. Um, obviously M's only one year ahead of this. So, I mean, they're around the same time, time frame. I don't think we've covered anything before that. I don't think we've covered anything from the twenties. I don't think we have. I don't think we have. I'd be surprised if we haven't in some ways, but in some ways I'm not surprised we haven't because I kind of talked about this when I mistakenly thought of this as a silent film. I thought to myself, that's really intimidating to uh, sit here and talk about a, you know, for 20 or 30 minutes to talk about a silent film, you really got to be ready to talk about structure and technique and everything. And then of course I was happy when this had sound only to regretfully be intimidated again because it has very little dialogue. <laughs> Big time. <laughs> and then think to myself, secretly, I'm glad Will's got a lead on this. <laughs> well, yeah. So that's the thing, right? And But I think that as much as, you know, we 
we're going to talk about the film. It's important to talk about the context of the film and the filmmaker and, and sort of the industry and the art and where the medium was at the time, right? Because all that stuff is important and does factor in here. Yeah. No, 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 it does. It totally does. I mean, there's a couple other filmmakers I forgot to mention that we have to mention, um, but they didn't move the camera. Not that I know of, but they did mess with effects and whatnot. Uh, Robert Veen or Ween, uh, Veen or Ween, I don't know which one it is, but that's the cabinet of Dr. Caligari guy. And then there's obviously, I don't know how I forgot to mention this, but he's become quite popular again recently. But uh, Georges Mallet, right? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Mallet was doing one shot uh, things, but he was overexposing the camera and doing things with special effects. And some of that stuff is used here. Some of that Mallet uh, technique is used here with the overexposing of the camera or putting gauze on the camera or anything. Um, you see some of those effects here. You do. And it really, but I think that's the, one of those things where it's a very practical thing, but it adds, uh, it adds a lot visually to the thing. And it's like, we can, it's important to understand the context and think about what people were trying, people like Keaton, other people that we've, we've talked about and celebrated before, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, something as simple as that. Um, you know, it's, it's fascinating to me that, that they would, um, think to do that now this is this is of course aspect ratio is a four three which by design was not by design but just where things were at that's that was the the aspect ratio right so yeah 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 some people call it uh window box you heard me say that uh term earlier mm -hmm. some people call that because it's a square so if that turns you off then you might not want and i know some people who that does turn off for the record um you know we got these really big nice televisions nowadays I think it's still very cool that we can see these films in their glorious formats. Uh, this oh, yeah. one, this one is beat to hell in some ways, but I mean, the film's almost a hundred years old. Yeah, and uh, there are some moments that are maybe a little too cloudy, a little too foggy. I don't know if it's been remastered or anything yet. I'm sure they'll probably try to. I mean, this is an important work, so I'm sure they'll probably try to master it in 4K or whatnot. But, um. Yeah, I mean, I, I I love when I see the window box come up because usually uh, it's going to be something I probably am not as familiar with. And, oh, that's right. And it's good to see that kind of stuff. And I, I I'm just curious. Go ahead, go ahead. I'm, 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 no, I'm, no, I was just going to say I, I'm never going to penalize a film for for things that were beyond its control. I'm quite content to watch the film in the the aspect ratio or or whatever. Uh, limitations or framework it had to work within, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, um, yeah. But you know what? When I'm watching this, one of the first things I'm really struck with is how much it feels like someone like Jean Roulin was indebted, and of course, Jess Franco, I think would be indebted to uh, to Dreyer and looking at this film. Yeah. Yeah. Just among others, right? Exactly. So very, very interesting. Um, the film's really well edited for the time, I think. You know, watching it and just seeing how it's put together. I mean, it's nothing groundbreaking, certainly. But again, it, and that's actually, let me rephrase that. It probably was a little bit groundbreaking. It just, we're 90 years on in the form now. So techniques have evolved. But I was struck with, you know, a lot of the editing felt very quick and kind of advanced for the time. Um, one thing I do want to kind of, card uh, criterion for is the crawl with the subs in this 
Mm. Uh, there's moments when they're obscured pretty significantly mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with some of the text on the screen behind it uh, or with the, the coloring. I can't remember what it was, but the, the lighting or the shading, but a bit of a, a ball drop there by them. Yeah. So, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know that they've ever went back and remastered this one. I know that they've had it for some time, and it's been around for a long time in their kind of, uh, I don't know if it's ownership or what it is. I mean, it does say Janus Films at the beginning, so I don't know uh, you know, how that goes, but I there are some things I think it could be, it probably could be um, improved upon mm -hmm. at this point, I would think, so... I don't know if they're going to or what they're going to do, but we'll see. Yeah, but nonetheless, um, some really great shots, too. Like, I love there's that shot. Do you remember that shot in this one of that angel weather vane? Oh, yeah. yeah. Early on. Like, there's some really strong kind of one shots in this that um, that I like. And obviously, you know, with the 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 film stock being a little aged and the, the gauze they're using and stuff, it, it really adds uh, a lot of atmosphere. And that's one of the big takeaways I have for this film is um, just the, the, one of the strengths of the film. It's a horror film. It's an early horror film um, is just its ability to be very atmospheric and to kind of immerse you in this. And, and what I was going to, I don't know if I'd said it talking about the, the four, three ratio is just how at times it feels very claustrophobic and it feels like you're trapped in this house because by and large you're, you're in this, like this house or this estate for the, the runtime. Right. Yeah. 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 So, um, but no, it, it, it works really well. Uh, interestingly, Dreyer used primarily non-actors in the film. Yeah. I believe the doctor is actually his uh, real life doctor. <laughs> Which is funny. Yeah. Who, the Mark Twain looking gentleman. Oh, dude, that's one of my notes. That dude is so Mark Twain. Mm -hmm. So Mark Twain. He even so, fires up the stogie, man, which made me really want to fire up a stogie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. Uh, interestingly, the lead in it, Julian West, I think he's pretty good in the film. He's got a great look. He was uh, quite the socialite. Oh, yeah? Uh, yeah he was uh, very wealthy. Very wealthy. Um, oh, there we go. I think he was a baron, right? Oh, interesting. So he really wanted to be an actor, and he financed the film. So he said, look, I'll finance the film. You make me the leading role. So he changed his name to Julian West. Um, I did not know that. Yeah, and then I think he went to Hollywood, and I think he ended up becoming a producer in some capacity. If memory – oh, no, I know what it was. He became the senior fashion editor at Vogue. <laughs> what the fuck? The fashion editor at Harper's Bazaar. Wow, what a weird trajectory that is. Yeah, so he was he was an openly gay man. Um and he was I guess in in fashion circles, he was he was known to be, you know, I'm quoting something in his bio here, universally regarded as one of the best dressed men in America. So Well, he, I mean, he is very dapper in this movie, I have to say. Yeah. Very good looking. Interestingly, he he was a mentor to Calvin Klein, Oscar de la Renta, Bill Blass. Um, I knew none of this until just now, yeah. which is pretty wild, right? Like one film role and then he kind of was a bit of a socialite and was heavily involved in the fashion world. So I thought that's kind of a, an interesting arc for him. That is, I had no idea. Yeah. And this is his one, one acting credit and one producer credit. Um, so I guess the, you know, the socialite and the money and stuff, he may have obviously helped get this make made and probably wanted to be in the film. 
as well. Maybe try his hand at acting. I mean, he's a good looking guy, right? I mean, his his eyes, his eyes are a bit haunting, but he's a good looking guy for the most part. At least I thought so. Sorry, Rick, one sec. Yeah. So (laughs) the, the quietness of things. Uh, Sorry, one sec here. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, but I, I did think he was quite good looking for the record. The record. Oh, nice. So he came to give me a bite of his Reuben, and it was incredible. Nice. The Reuben is a delicious sandwich. We've talked about this before, personally, between the two of us. For those who don't yes. know, Will and I are big fans of the Reuben. <laughs> Just want to get that out there. <laughs> the Gentleman's Guide to Sandwiches. Yeah, exactly. We are we are sandwich aficionados. Yes. All right, back at it. Yes. Um, so, what else do we got here? Uh, you know, much like so, the big thing, the big takeaway, if you've seen *Past the Joan of Arc*, um, is uh, what's her name? Falconetti, I think, is her name, or something like that. It's not Cobretti, because that'd be Marion Cobretti. Nice, nice. It's Falconetti, what's her name again? It'll come to me, man. Um, uh, Are you talking about the lead actress in Joan of Arc? Yeah, the lead in in Passion of Joan of Arc. Um, Something Falconetti, I think is her name. I can't remember her first name. I just remember the Nettie part. Maria Falconetti. Yeah. That's... I didn't even even remember the Falcon part of Nettie. I just remember the Nettie. Oh, there you go. Remembering that's Italian and that's interesting. No, exactly. Um, But the thing is in this one, too... Faces are used really, really well. Uh, yes. Uh, well, I mean, again, back then, you, you know, you those were the special effects, right? I mean, you, you, you had some special effects, but you know, we the camera work and stuff, all that stuff was great, but you had to rely on um, the actors' faces as well. And I think that's something that you know only some directors really nail nowadays. Uh, is the faces and uh, we've talked about that before with the Coen brothers and folks like that and how they nail the faces and how important faces are to cinema oh big time and in this one like I said it just you'd mention this at a time when you don't have strong effects uh, you can do some camera trickery and you can do a few things um, you know but the facial acting in this especially from non-actors right it just it's really really effective and atmospheric because there's sort of this this kind of slowly unfurling horror from the actors on their faces, which is really, really strong. Mm-hmm. Um, we get a vampire henchman, which is awesome. And I just love the, uh, the hushed kind of urgent vibe throughout. And it just, it feels almost like this, you know, you ever have those dreams where they feel really slow and really awful and you just can't get it moving fast enough. Yeah. 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 That's what, it's like for the characters, mm-hmm. not in terms of the pacing of the film. I'm not, this isn't a sort of criticism of that, but just as the characters, it feels like this, this awful slow nightmare that just can't, um, you know, they can't get through it. Right. Yeah. I enjoy maybe more than most, uh, probably atmosphere in films, uh, which is weird to say because sometimes I, I push back right with Gialli sometimes and, but and and those are so much about atmosphere, especially what we're going to talk about next week. But it's interesting to kind of go back and look at these 
and uh, just see that atmosphere was always it was such a huge part of early cinema too. Oh, big time! And you know he lets the camera linger in spots. He lets the camera track in spots. The way he kind of moves the camera around, where it's both subjective and yet not subjective, is a very odd touch. There's moments when you think you're looking through our lead actor's uh, point of view, only for the camera to come back and he's already walking in a different way. Yeah, and it's 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 a very it it gives you a very uneven. And not uneven, I guess, but it, it it sets it sets it out to make it a very odd tone. I guess if that makes any sense. Yeah, oh, it does. It definitely does. Yeah, that's what I think. It just makes it. It just the tone's odd because of that and it's off putting. And I can imagine in early cinema that that would be as much about the frightening as anything, right? Oh yeah, yeah. No, definitely. Um also, uh, a couple um, a couple other interesting points I thought was how this look, sort of juxtaposes faith and science. Yeah. Which I think is interesting early on. Early on, yeah. That's early on, an early touch that you you think to yourself, well, that's an interesting idea. I didn't think to use that. No. <laughs> not at all. Not at all. Uh, they, they have this book that sort of informs us of vampires and kind of the rules and rituals, which may seem clumsy 90 years on, but at the time you got to remember they're informing audiences about the mythology of this, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's a necessary sort of thing. Um, uh, iron stake in this, not a wooden stake, ironically. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't, I don't know about how I feel about that. I, 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 I tell you what I do like about this film. And I don't think this is a giveaway in any way, shape, or form. The idea of the vampire in this film as an old lady. Yeah. I think that's a very interesting touch. I think that's way ahead of its time. Oh, way ahead. And an interesting touch because maybe characters, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to sound any type of political belief here, but maybe characters are more trusting of an old lady. 100%, yeah. Then they would be of, you know, obviously Nosferatu, which is, oh a, that's a creature, right? More than mm -hmm. anything. I mean, that's obviously a striking creature, but, um, but even Dracula, which came out in 31 or 1930, 30 or 31. So right before this, um, you know, he's, he's a dapper kind of sexual beast, right? Good yeah. looking to some the degree. Very white of his time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Uh, we're here. We just got a little old peasant lady, but she's this monster. And you never really, I mean, for all intents and purposes, you never really see the monster. Uh, well, I, I guess you do. I guess at one point you do see her feeding, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. In a field, I believe, on a bench, you do see her feeding. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think for the most part, I think it's a nice touch to do it that way. So oh, I agree. I definitely agree. Sorry. Didn't, uh, mean, didn't mean to cut you off there. No, 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 dude. That's okay. I've been cutting you off for 15 years, baby. <laughs> um, you know, another thing I like about this, uh, interesting, um, they talk about 25 years ago, there was an epidemic, uh, something like this sort of, I don't know, maybe my, I don't understand necessarily the context of my note, but something about like a zombie plague and sort of the anxieties that at the time society would have had. I mean, this wasn't as informed a society as we are now. Right. Right. 
Right. So just I love how some of the folklore of the time is kind of getting woven in here. So this creates in a way sort of like we would get with stuff like Blair Witch or kind of a Holocaust, sort of the anxieties around separating reality from fiction. Mm. Yeah. Right. In society. So I, I like that. Um, we get an early skeleton effect in this, which, you know, it works. It's good. It 90, is. Yeah, yeah. 90 years old, right. I, I so. think so. It's, 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 uh, basically a, a dissolve, but I think yeah. it works really good. Yeah. Yeah. It works good. Uh, interesting sort of varied camera angles as well. Some overhead stuff and, you know, uh, just some good stuff. Um, I just, I guess the one thing I wanted more of was kind of some vampire hunger, but they can't necessarily give us the money shot, uh, or as much of a money shot, right? I got to think about context of, uh, where the, the genre and the, and film was out at the time. But no, this was an interesting one. Like I said, it's, it's evident, like I said, people like Franco and Roland, how, how much they take away from a film like this. Yeah. 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 No, I agree. I agree. Uh, yeah. And you know, Roland is, is actually, he's, a. You know he's a he's a filmmaker that I struggle with sometimes. We've talked about this, right? Um, at times I think you know, like Jess Franco, like you just mentioned as well. At times I think these guys, you see a still or you or you see something, you think, okay, this is it. This is the one I'm going to fall in love with. Mm-hmm. And I've still not had that moment with Franco, for the record. You know, it would be an interesting one to do with Franco's. Have you ever seen Bloody Moon? I have. Yeah, I've seen it. I like it. Bloody Moon's a good one um, because it's it's outside of a lot of his other stuff. It's a really like really gory kind of slasher, right? So or giallo kind of. It's a good one. Very different than a lot of his other work. What's interesting so. is I don't know what Arrow's got going on, but they've put out one of his more sexual films on the, their service. Uh, Macumba Sexual or something like that. Yes. Yes. And I have seen that film before, and I mean, it borders on pornography, uh, if it isn't pornography. And uh, it's interesting. I don't know if Arrow's planning on releasing some erotic cinema or what, but on their service, they got that, and they got a Sylvia Crystal film on there, which I've actually thought about covering before, because I believe it's Italian. Um, oh, man, what's the name of it? I think it's called Juliet or Julia or something like that. Julie? Well, I think it's, Julia sounds familiar. Yeah, I think it's called something like that. Anyway. Um, interesting. So I'm wondering if we're going to start to see, because that's a genre that's sadly underrepresented on uh, physical format. And I think it's because, you know, we, we live in a very chaste time right now and, uh, people aren't putting out as much of the kind of seventies and late sixties, early erotic stuff. I mean, vinegar syndrome does, but I'm wondering if like some of these other boutique labels might start doing that. So. Yeah, it feels like we're in this weird cycle, yeah, of sort of puritanical kind of like people are pumping the brakes again. Whereas, you know, you look at some of the stuff that in our early days um, was kind of hard to get. Some of the stuff 50 years ago, even like that one we did, um, you know, about a month ago, uh, but sort of the sexual politics of women. It was the Italian one. No, what was that? With the what's his name? Uh, this is going to be a bungle fest, but you know the film I'm talking about. But I was remember watching that and thinking, man, this is 50 years old. It doesn't feel like a lot of films are being made like this nowadays. And not to say they're not. I mean, listen, you and I have admitted that our ears are not to the ground like they once were. No, not like they once were. It's not, where, it's not like 
we just don't have the time. You know, we're raising kids, we're working hard. Not to say people that do have the ear to the ground are not doing both those things, but for you and I, that that's you know, we're just you know, our, our ears not as to the was ground it, as it uh, was. Was it the Laughing Woman? The Laughing Woman. Laughing Woman, yeah. There you go. Feminine readings or whatever the. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That one's uh, definitely an erotic uh, piece of cinema. Um, yeah, you know, I think the erotic film is coming back though. I I, I really do. I know Adrian Lyne. So yeah, I think it's uh, you know, Adrian Lyne made one with Ben Affleck and uh Anna Darmus. I, I I never saw it. It got mixed reviews and stuff, but he came back and made one. And from what I understand, there's also I know Poor Things, the new uh Oh, there's a pretty blatant, like not blatant, but graphic sex scene. Oh uh, yeah, there's several. From what I understand, yeah. several graphic moments of nudity and sex in that. And uh that's uh is that Yorgos Lanthomos? Is that him yeah, or is a yeah. freak, man? And then uh, you know, it, it, I think that we're I think I'm hoping as a society we've gotten past some of that chasteness because it's yeah it hurts art it really does it, it hurts art it's, it's not just, it's yeah not that all art needs sex scenes it doesn't no but if if the artist feels it's called for then yeah. they shouldn't be artistically hampered because of a puritanical point of view right like yeah. let's allow them the the artistic freedom uh, of expression as they see fit that's what right? we, you know one we should cover at some point that I think got shit on right around the beginnings of some of this stuff was uh, Jane Campion's uh, In the Cut, that uh, Meg Ryan film. I think, you know, I was about to say that when you had mentioned, some, I can't remember which one, I think you mentioned Adrian Lyne, which made me think of, uh, didn't he direct uh, Fatal Attraction? Uh, yes, that was him. He did that in nine so, and a half weeks. And yeah, yeah. Unfaithful so I was like erotic films. thrillers. Even Criterion's got that program about erotic thrillers. And I feel like In the Cut is, is on Criterion on the channel, <laughs> yeah. man. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's a modern Gialli, if there ever was one. That's a Gialli. It, it definitely is. Yeah. It definitely is. Mark Ruffalo, man. Yeah, and I was just, we're going to see a lot of Mark Ruffalo in Poor Things as well. Yeah, you will. <laughs> From what I understand, a whole lot of Mark Ruffalo. Yeah. Anyway, right. um, okay, uh, I only got a few more things to add. I, I, You know, this film blew me away first time I saw it. And I'd only seen it for the first time, I guess, 10 years ago or so. And maybe then I rewatched it on Criterion. It was like, we really ought to cover that. And uh, I just forgot about it. It was just one of those things, you know, life comes at you hard and fast, and I just forgot about it. So I'm glad we kind of got this one in here and kind of talk about it, and hopefully people will go check it out. One of the neat things about this movie is, you know, we talk about Italian films with their dream logic, and we've talked about that a lot over the last decade and a half, which is weird to say out loud. But, <laughs> but we have talked about that a lot. And what cinema can provide that few other art forms can in some ways, maybe music can. And I guess, I guess they all can in some way, I guess literature can as well, but cinema definitely can give you that really strong vibe of, is this for real or is this not for real right now? And really it comes down to the filmmaker and how far they want to play that. And they can do all kinds of things. They can give you subliminal messages. They can make you see one thing and you're seeing something else. They can make you think you're seeing one thing and you're seeing something else. It's just, it's it's a form that only master filmmakers really kind of manipulate and play with. And I think that's what you got here. Again, Dreyer didn't work that much. He would take a lot of time off between films. Uh, maybe made more films than Kubrick did, but kind of a similar type of working structure to Kubrick. He would work for a real long time on stuff and not really make something until he really felt like it needed to be made. So his and film, that's, his that's film's, the approach, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because Filmmakers need to, they feel like they always need to work, not to cut you off, but it's interesting, right? 
It is. He really had to get compelled to make it versus being compelled to always make something. Yeah, I think there's just some guys out there that have to have a reason to get in there and tinker. Like there's some guys that just want to tell stories and just want to get a film out and they have this energy. But then there's some guys that need a moment of inspiration or maybe some type of new technology to really kind of drive them to the next step, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I think Dreyer was one of those guys. I think he was trying to push the form forward. And eventually, of course, you know, he eventually gets passed over, but not before his influence is left, and he's left a major mark on it, like so many of the European filmmakers of that period. Um, again, very interesting that he chose the female to be a vampire, not just a female, but an old lady female, which I think is a nice touch. Um, oh, be- great touch. Because, because, again, like you said, the monster is usually the man. Yeah. Well, that and the vampires, historically, they're either sexual beast or they're just beast. Very rarely have I seen too many vampire films where it's an old lady. Isn't this funny, not to spoil things, but our back-to-back films have had old or women as the the creatures. Actually, wait, three? Yeah. Three out of four are, are horror picks this month. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sort it's, of a, an odd twist of fate. Yeah, but that, odd but that, plays, fate. That, that plays with expectations, right? Yeah, and it has nothing to do with what I'm going through in my personal life. <laughs> no, because I picked two of them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I picked two of the three. But so. it is interesting, right? I mean, because, you know, it so often is, you know, some type of testosterone-fueled monster of some sort. And even Girls' Night Out is definitely more testosterone-heavy, right? Even though it's playing with the format, but it's still got testosterone involved. Or does it? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I'm thinking about that now in hindsight. Yeah. So does that mean technically we went four for four? We might have. We might have went four for four and didn't even realize we did it. Yeah, subverting expectations, man. Yeah. I think think that for me, the most interesting thing to talk about with this movie is just the camera setups, the effects, the use of shadows, the way the camera. Yeah. The way the camera moves. Again, sometimes it's just little touches. Sometimes it's just a pan to the left and a pan back to the right. But what's so genius about those pans to the left, pans to the right, or the pan to the right and then pan to the left? What's so genius about those is it it offers the viewer, and this film's short. It's only like an hour and 13 minutes, right? Like it's like 73 minutes long, 72 minutes long, something like that. Yeah. So it's a breezy watch. In my opinion, it's a breezy watch. I don't think anybody, it's not too far of a commitment. No. But what's great about it is those little camera pans. They, again, I said this earlier, but I just want to go over this again. They lead to so much unsettling of the viewer. You're never really sure who to trust and what to trust. You're not sure to rather trust the perspective of the hero, quote unquote. Are we trusting the perspective of the doctor who seems to be this kind of maybe Renfield S type character? Maybe. And yet he has another servant, the peg leg guy. Yeah. Which leads to another great moment with shadows, by the way. That moment where the the shadow sets down and the peg leg guy. That's pretty. That's very oh, cool. Man. Yeah, there's great. <laughs> I, I can't believe I, I forgot to mention that. Just great use of shadows. And yeah. you know who else I feel like really leans into this film as far as being uh, or a dryer as a filmmaker, but this film specifically, I think, is uh, Eggers. Man. Yeah, I, I would. I would say he's probably a fan of this film. Yes. Yeah, I'd be amazed. And for me. Like, of the new horror guys, for me, he's the most interesting. Um, not that Aster isn't. I do think Aster is interesting as well. 
But Aster is interesting, but Julie DeCorno, Julie DeCorno, man. Yeah, and DeCorno, and then you know you got Brendan Cronenberg, I mean, carrying on his father's name and you know, we got a lot of great, you know, young horror filmmakers coming up. The guys that did uh, those two Australian brothers that did talk to me and, you oh, know. Philippu brothers, yeah. yeah. Maybe we will have this renaissance of horror filmmakers. And maybe the promise of what filmmakers like Eli Roth promised where, you know, he said he was coming, you know, up. he's going to make horror films and that's all he's going to make. And, of course, you know, he got bitten by the bug and, and you know, he had to work and he has to make money. And look, I, I don't fault him for that. If he wants to make the house with the clock in the walls, or if he wants to make a kid's film or whatever else, more power to him. You got to make money. You got to be successful in Hollywood or they won't let you make movies anymore. That, 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 that's the end of the, that's the, it, it really is. That's cut and dry. That's it. If you're not making money for somebody, you're not going to make it. Not unless you have some type of artistic praise that goes beyond the limits of financial uh, understanding. Are you going to be able to do it? And so you have filmmakers who either take very low money and make the films they want or very, they take the money they get from the bigger films and generate that into smaller films to make that are interesting. Now, again, I hope these guys stick to that and I hope we have a new uh, realm of these type of filmmakers. And I th I, we are, I think, seeing some of that paramount's uh smile was a bit a bit of a hit i was good i i'll tell you what i liked smile yeah i, I still haven't seen it but it's good but it's, it's not missing it's good yeah i mean and you know of course james wan has turned horror movies into like you know blockbusters with very right. simple camera tricks and jump scares and whatnot and very little gore not necessarily my kind of thing and i think he's hit or miss on some of his stuff but i gotta give him credit because he at least is taking small budgets and generating huge income. Well, he is. And there's a love of the craft as much as I am. And our good buddy, Matt, and I had a, a, a conversation about how much we both disliked Malignant. But yeah. that aside, I, I am in favor of what Juan's doing. Let's give flowers to Zach Kreger. Have you seen Barbarian yet? Yeah. So that one's, that one's interesting because oh, that God. one is really just an exercise in horror movie making. Because the movie makes no sense. No, it doesn't. It's, it's a roller coaster ride. <laughs> yeah, it's just it's just bizarre moment after bizarre moment, uh, for no reason other than the fact that it's a horror movie. And part of me loves that. Part of me doesn't love that. But I cannot deny its audacity. And and I think to me there was something. There's something very sincere about that. Whereas I feel like a lot of times Roth as a filmmaker is there's something a bit disingenuous, like. I don't doubt that he loves horror movies, but to me, there's just, there's just all the filmmakers we've mentioned so far to me, I feel like there's, I mean, there's an unfair thing to say in it and I don't have real answers, but my impression I get is there's just more of a sincerity from Eggers and the like, right? Well, I, I think that, you know, what you could get into in the conversation here is kind of like with Dreyer too. This is his only horror film. Maybe some of the more strong horror films come from directors who typically don't make Sorry, horror films. What's that? Yeah, but Dreyer, you know, this is his only horror film that I know of. I, you know, I don't think he made another horror film. So no. I think that sometimes Craigers, the uh, the guy that did Barbarian, he's a comedian by trade. I know. So sometimes I think it takes something like that. Jordan Peele is a great example. Jordan Peele. I was about to say Jordan Peele, man. Yeah, a great example of. Sometimes it takes that perspective to kind of flip it on its head and 
although you're known for being this comedic genius or this really good writer or just a comedic performer, you know, all of us have a darkness inside of us and sometimes you just got to let it go. And of course, unfortunately in Hollywood, I don't think Jordan Peele's got to worry about this because he's basically said that he enjoys making horror films. So he might just keep making horror films. Plus Mm -hmm. he gets, he gets a lot of freedom making them. And you know, that's, that's something that that's one of the great things about horror films. If you're willing to stay in that world, you can get a lot more freedom than you can if you work in big budget world. But, you know, I, I hope he sticks with it because at least his voice, whether it's, great filmmaking or not or whether the film hits or misses his voice is unique so that's the other thing about horror films and what it generates and that's what you know i I come away from this dryer film thinking this is unlike murnau's nosferatu which is a different feel this is unlike lang's m which is a horror film of a different ilk but still a horror film in a lot of ways because it's horrible events and yet these filmmakers not known technically for that, although Lang maybe more so, or Murnau maybe more so. I don't know. They made a few maybe, but it's it's interesting to me when you take that. Like you know, it, it's interesting to me when Brian De Palma says I'm going to make a horror film, or if Tarantino says I'm going to make a horror film, or even if you know Martin Scorsese when he did Cape Fear, he's like I'm going to make. It's basically my take on the slasher, uh, as close to a slasher as you're going to get from Martin Scorsese anyway. Yeah. And, and and that stuff's interesting. Uh, whether it succeeds or not, you know, and it's a gamble, although I think Cape Fear made money, but it's still interesting, and it stands out in his filmography in a weird way. It does. Um, I don't really have a whole lot more to add. I'm glad we talked about this. I advise people to check out the commentary track as well. It's really good. kind of talks about more about Dreyer's history and kind of about subjectivity and the use of the camera and whatnot. But uh, really good stuff. Uh, let's get over to you, Make or Breaks MVTs. What do you got? Make or Break, the reveal we've kind of talked about here. Um, to subvert expectations, you know, 90 years on is a really intelligent, insightful move. Uh, whether there was social commentary there um, or just uh, an interesting sort of turning expectations on their head. I think it's, it's, it's just testament to, I think one of the reasons you picked this film, which is how far ahead of the, the game a lot of these European filmmakers were. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, MVT, the atmosphere, like I said, there's just this slow kind of, you're stuck in this mud, this molasses, this slow nightmare. You can't get out of, you're trapped, um, in this, this, this house. And it's just very dreamy and it just, it works. It's effective. Uh, my score is a 7.5 out of 10. Uh, 7 points. I'm a snake now. Um, I'm going to go. No, I'm going to say 7.5, man. I'm going to say 7.5. I think it's a very, very good film. Very strong film. Yeah. I'm very grateful I finally saw it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, so I'm right there with you. Um, my make or break on most things. I mean, my make or break. I really love that, man, that tracking shot where the dancing shadows are taking place. Oh, yeah. I don't know how exactly they pulled that off. I mean, I think I know, but you know, it's not that sophisticated in modern filmmaking and what you can do now, but it still is quite the trick when you think about it. And I love stuff like that, right? Like yeah. I was talking about bed knobs and broomsticks, speaking about witches, and I still am blown away by that sequence with all the yeah, the marching, um, love that like, sequence, love that, <laughs> love it, it's so good, right? And yeah. here we are talking about a film that's nine years old, and we're mystified by the 
the movie magic. Well, it's, it's, it still works if you're willing to give yourself over to the movie. Yes. Which I think is the key. Whenever I hear somebody say the CGI looks bad, immediately it makes me think to myself, well, you're not giving yourself over to the movie. That's right. Um, because if you give yourself over to the movie, yeah, the CGI looks bad, but you give yourself into it. And you just buy it for what it is. So I never like that criticism, really, even though I will admit there is some bad CGI and some bad effects out there. I do sure. like, you know, if you can give yourself over, you can forgive a lot of that stuff. Um, <laughs> was you going to say something? <laughs> oh, no, I was just slurping some coffee. Oh, oh there you go. Uh, MVT, I'm going to agree with you. I, I had dryer down, but I'm going to agree with you on atmosphere. It's kind of a combination of both um, because this film does feel like a dream. Like, I'm not even really sure. Uh, I'm not even really sure of the ending. <laughs> I know. Or the beginning in so many ways. The movie just feels like a fever dream. It just feels like a 73 minute exercise of like dreamlike sequences that one after another. And our main protagonist is just kind of walking through each sequence. And uh, for whatever reason, that works. That doesn't always work, but it works here. Yeah. And uh, I think one of the reasons why is because it's short. I think that makes it, I think that helps. I mean, this, Ooh, you, uh, yeah, you add another hour to this and you got a totally different type of movie. Man. Um, my score is just a little bit higher than yours. It's within that half point range. I'm going to go eight. Uh, this is the fourth time I've seen this movie. But nice. I think your score is more than fair because I don't think this is a masterpiece, but I think it's a very important film. And we've talked about that on this show over and over and over again. I know our good friend Troy's going to love hearing this, but anything for me in that seven and a half to eight and a half range, maybe even close to nine is, well, no, about seven and a half, eight and a half to me is important. Great. Once you start getting above eight and a half, I mean, you're talking about like one of the greatest films ever made really, in my opinion, because mm -hmm. it's really hard to give films a perfect rating. You know, I'm not, I'm not out there to throw out tens left and right. I want to, but I'd love to, we'd be <laughs> all the better for it. Yeah. And I might feel that way, but, you know, I'm just going to throw it out there. Um, all right. That's the big show this week. Um, make sure to check out everybody else in our pod community. Not a bomb. Watch Skip Plus, Raiders of the Podcast, Very uh, Clickers, love that album. See here. Who am I forgetting? Night of the Living Podcast. Am I forgetting anybody? Chinstroker mm. versus Punter, I'm sure. They're yep. in there. But uh, like I said, they do a video cast too, which is interesting. It's interesting to see those guys after listening to them for so many years. Um, yeah, check out that. So what are we doing uh, next week, Will? Next week, we're going to get controversial. Oh, boy. Well, you and I agree on many things cinematically. Yeah. From a culinary perspective. Yeah. Sammy searches. Uh, yeah. <laughs> we agree on most things in life, it seems. It's... One of the reasons we've had such a beautiful, long-standing relationship. But one thing we're not exactly on the same page with on all things is Dario Argento. So yes. I felt like initially to pull back the curtain, I almost picked a film that we were going <clears> to <throat> have reviewed twice on the show because Sammy wasn't on the first review and I didn't realize that we'd covered it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Todd and I had covered Phenomena and I thought that'd be really fun. Um, but luckily Sammy pointed out using that wonderful spreadsheet that we had in fact covered it. <laughs> yeah. So I pivoted and we had a few things. I was going to pick an Argentinian film that was a mix of political thriller and 
found footage, occult film. Um, going to go with something from Hong Kong, like Hexed or something like that. But in the end, uh, landed on uh, what I think is maybe Argento's most underappreciated film, and that's 1980's Inferno. So nice. You stood on that one, man. Well, it's, I'm glad you picked it because I've kind of been hovering over this for a rewatch for some time. I've kind of been going back and looking at, you know, over the last few years, kind of been going back sometimes and looking at filmmakers that I sometimes struggle with and kind of re-examining that and seeing what that does for me. So, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to checking this one out. Nice. It'll be fun to check it out again. Uh, you know, and you know, Dario's one that, you know, not, not to the level of Fulci, but certainly he's one that, uh, I've come to appreciate a bit more and, uh, in that time. And we'll talk about that next week. All right. Uh, that is everything we want to wish everybody, uh, happy Halloween still and everything when, uh, we'll be back next week. So I will say adios. Adios. Thanks for listening. You can find the gentleman at ggtmc.com and you can email the gentleman at midnightcinema at gmail.com. 